Good morning, everyone. We have a lot to do this morning. This is uh, one of those module sessions that is uh, a little bit packed. So we're going to go ahead and get started. We're doing um, Bibliology Part 2, Preservation and, and, uh, of Scripture, and hopefully we'll get to the Synoptic Gospels also. If we don't, we'll just do that all next week. We'll see kind of how our, our time goes um, today. But why don't we open in prayer and begin our Lord's Day together. Thank you, Father, for the Lord's Day and for the fact that this is our, uh, in many ways, our Christian Sabbath. It is our rest from the week. It is our time to be refueled spiritually. It is our time to gather with the body of Christ, to enjoy one another, to learn more of you so that we might be better worshipers. Lord, I pray for this morning that our time specific to this uh, class here would help us, Lord, to love your word all the more, to be more in awe of your word, and to understand what it took to miraculously craft this word we literally can hold in our hands. We thank you, Lord. Give us attentive minds, quick minds to understand, to grasp, and as a result, to love you all the more in obedience in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Just so you know, if you're in here because you don't know where else to be, um, there is another class that has now started. Uh, Kerry Danielson is teaching, uh, I believe, through the book of Galatians. And he, he is a, a master seminary graduate, super teacher. So if you're, if you're just in here because you didn't know what to do or you thought, uh, what did I get myself into with BTI? Then there's the, uh, the other class that's in the 160 room. But for now, uh, welcome. And we won't ostracize you if you sneak out and say, I think I'll go to the other one. That's, that's fine. So today we're going to talk about the preservation of Scripture, and, and if, you're, if you're just now figuring this out, we're going back and forth between Bible survey and theology, um, and today we're on the, the Bible survey part, or the theology part. The preservation of Scripture. This is the question of how do you know that the Bible you hold in your hand is accurate? How do you know that? And so we're going to address that today, plus a, a, if we can get to the synoptic Gospels. The Westminster Confession says the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in ages are therefore authentical. I like that word. So in all controversies of religion, the church is to finally appeal to them. So there's some questions about preservation that we could ask, such as to what detail has God preserved the original? How much detail do we have? How has he preserved the original? Was there just one big manuscript or were there many? And then one more question, did he preserve the original miraculously or providentially? And so those are the questions we're going to answer if you, you don't have to write those down. Um, we'll start with the last one. I want to talk to you about the providential nature of preservation. Providential nature of preservation. Those who hold to a miraculous uh, preservation view, which isn't bad. It's, it's probably just lacking a little bit of understanding, but they'll use various proof texts for the miraculous pre preservation of Scripture, and they'll take them out of the context. Things like Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. That's true. That doesn't speak to the preservation of Scripture, though. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Psalm 119.89, that is true. But if that's speaking of preservation, it should be forever, O Lord, your word is fixed in my right hand. It's right there. Psalm 119, verse 152, long have I known from your testimonies that you founded them forever. And I put some other verses uh, up there for you as well. Um, things like uh, Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Again, that speaks to the integrity of the word of God. It speaks to the content. It doesn't speak to the fact that I hold a copy in my hand. So uh, we want to be very clear about that. They don't promise the miraculous preservation of Scripture. They promise that all of Scripture is the word of God and that all that Scripture says will happen will happen, which is, a, which is much more important, much more uh, key for us. So how do we say that the Bible has been preserved? Well, the Bible has been preserved providentially through men to keep the copies that we have today. I'll give you an example. God used a man to preserve the word of God. 
God was involved, but he didn't intercede supernaturally to reconstitute a book from ashes. Uh, Jeremiah 36, 1 through 32, Jeremiah 36, 28, God said, take again another scroll and write on it all the former words that were on the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, burned. So what's the story here? Jehoiakim burned the content of Scripture, burned at, at, at one of many, many Bible burnings in history. And God didn't say, stand back and watch this. And the ashes created a new scroll. No, he said, sorry, Jeremiah, get your pen out. We're going to write this down again. And he used men. Deuteronomy 17, 18, now it shall come about that when he, that is a king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. By the way, a little interesting note here, that was a law that says that when you become king of Israel, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to sit down and handwrite the law of God yourself. Why would that be important? Can you think of a better way to learn the word of God than having to write it out? All by yourself. And notice in the presence of the Levitical priests, they're looking over his shoulder going, ah, no, you misspelled that one. Mark it out. Oh, I'm sorry. We want the word to be pure. You got to start over. So the preservation happened not so much miraculously as it did providentially. Now, if somebody says um, the Bible is absolutely miraculous, I would agree with that. The preservation of the Bible has been, been accomplished by God's providence, by his working behind the scenes. There are, for example, some Old Testament words, not very many, um, which may have been lost from our modern copies. There was no miraculous preservation. For example, 1 Samuel 13, 1 says Saul was, and we don't know what the word is here, we think 40 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned, we think, 32 years over Israel. We don't know exactly what the, the words are. The, the best manuscripts we have say Saul was years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years over Israel. So we know that's not exactly accurate. Now, if all of a sudden you're going, there's a part in my Bible that I can't trust, don't worry, stay for the rest of the lecture. Second Samuel 8, 4, David captured from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung the chariot Horses, but reserved enough of them for 100 chariots. You compare this with 1 Chronicles 18.4. David took from him 1,000 chariots and 7,000 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. Now, there's, so there's a variance. Does that mean that we should have no confidence in our copies of the Bible? No. Scripture says that copies of the originals are the word of God. Copies of the originals are the word of God. This is an important verse. Ezra 7, 14. For you are sent by the king and the seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Ezra had a copy, and it was called the law of God. John five thirty nine. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Now, why does that say, Jesus saying this, that, that a copy of the original is the word of God? Because Jesus called a copy the scriptures. So that's really important for us. So you, you don't have to abandon your Bible, and you shouldn't. The work of preserving the text of scripture is basically a providential work, not a miraculous one. And, and that's okay. Um, the providence of God works in your life all the time. You, you didn't get a paycheck by a miracle right when the next time you get paid you don't go it's a miracle and you know you go providentially god gave me this job and allowed me to provide for myself so that, that's the difference let's talk about preservation particular to the new testament there are somewhere in the vicinity of 5600 greek manuscripts some of them as early as the second century some are partial manuscripts some are full manuscripts now, the question is, why don't we have the original autographs? The, the autographs are what we call the original document produced by an apostle or under the authority of an apostle. Why don't we have those? We don't know for sure, but there's two good possible reasons. First of all, mankind tends to worship relics. I've said this before, that if you took all of the pieces of the cross of Christ, which have supposedly been passed out throughout the ages uh, by the Catholic Church, you could build Noah's Ark with it. Because it's just a lot. 
What do you think would happen if we found the original book of Romans and put it under glass? I think we would quit reading it and we would go look at it instead of reading it. But there's another reason. Because we don't have the original. Let's go back to that illustration of the book of Romans under, uh, under glass in the museum. What if somebody was able to break in, lift that glass up, and with precision and detail, change a couple of words? And then point out, look, it doesn't say what all of our copies say. Now we have a problem. But with millions and millions and millions of copies of these manuscripts all over the place, you can't change them. How are you going to change the Bible now? It's impossible. So without the autographs, we're actually safer. There are some variants between manuscripts. And let me, this isn't up here on the notes, but I want to talk about this just for a moment. The variations that occur between various manuscripts, these 5,600 manuscripts, they would bring us to um, what most would call approximately a 99.6, 99.7% accuracy as far as the copy you hold, in, you hold in your hand being exactly a reproduction of what the original was. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, this is God we're talking about. It should be 100%. Let me give you some context here. Homer's Odyssey and Iliad. There are only a few hundred actual copies. And the, 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 uh, the manuscripts, so-called, that we have today. You go down to, you go get on Amazon and order a copy of, of Homer. You're going to get something in the mail. And you can, according to, to statisticians believe that this is 95% accurate when compared to the original Homer, Odyssey, and Iliad. That is considered by ancient uh, standards to be basically perfect. And that is the greatest example of literature being passed down and copied through generation after generation. So when we say that the Bible, the copy you hold in your hand, is said to be somewhere in the vicinity of 99.678% Uh, accurate that's essentially absolutely perfect now if you say but that still doesn't satisfy me let me give you another number here these variations between manuscripts over 95 percent of them are insignificant they speak to they 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 are spelling discrepancies they are word order discrepancies and here's how they're counted by the way uh, when you say well how many of them are there well there's ten thousand discrepancies between these 5,600 manuscripts. You go, ah, 10,000, wait a minute. But if there are 3,000 manuscripts that say our Lord Jesus Christ instead of Jesus Christ our Lord, that counts as 3,000. And so a spelling error. Has anybody, have, have you ever had to read something written in English even 400 years ago? And it's just weird, all these, you know, Y's where they're supposed to be I's and they stick E's on the end of everything Well, it's the same thing. You can still read it. You still understand it. It's that sort of variation. And 95% of them are absolutely insignificant. 5% of them are significant in that they they have to be examined a little bit further. And 0% of them will impact our theology one way or another, our view of God, our view of soteriology, salvation. None of them will impact that. So considering um, those those statistics this is an amazing book and in that sense there is a miraculous nature to it what we have now is what is called textual criticism and i know that that word scares us but it's an art and science the art and science of textual criticism is to determine the best reading so in other words you have these 5600 manuscripts and you're 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 taking comparisons of the same text and textual criticism, an art that's been developed for 500 years now, is to figure out which one is the best one. And I have a whole lecture on this. I won't bore you with it, but I'm just going to give you one example. There's a whole set of rules that text critics have come up with which help them to determine the best reading. Uh, One of those rules, an example, is that the longest, most complicated, most difficult to understand reading is probably the right one. Why would that be? Because copyists um, over the centuries tended to shorten. They read something and go, that doesn't make sense. And they shorten it. 
there's also all kinds of little errors that, that can appear in manuscripts, um, things like a repeated word. Have you ever done that? You're, you're writing or typing? I look at my sermon notes at the end of every week on Saturday night, and I'm amazed how stupid I am on a computer. Uh, I looked at, at it, and I typed something, and that's not what came up. And that's been happening for thousands of years. So text critics, these are, these are uh, men who have studied these manuscripts and spend um, years sometimes making comparisons of one particular text. Um, the United Bible Society, um, Greek New Testament, 4th edition, which is our very best Greek New Testament today. That's the product of scholars spending their lives looking at these manuscripts and, and comparing to others. There's a whole book that goes along with the USB 4th um, edition Greek New Testament that tells you their thinking. Bruce Metzger wrote this book. He was on the committee and he kept these notes. And you go through and you see page after page of this, why we chose this word to translate instead of this one. This wasn't a coin toss. This was well done. And so the, the, the Bible you hold in your hand, English Standard Version, New American Standard, um, even the King James. King James Version is 500 years old. It would get a B minus today because we've had 500 years of scholarship since then. But these are outstanding uh, translations and you can get saved and go to heaven by reading them. So that is uh, why I want you to have confidence in your Bible. Now, now we get to the question of how did we get our Bible? How do we have these books? We said this before, but I want to talk to you about canonicity. And the only true test of canonicity is the testimony of God, the Holy Spirit, to the authority of his own word. In other words, the ultimate way we know that the book of the Bible is a book of the Bible is through the Holy Spirit. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. That sounds like circular reasoning, not when you're appealing to the very highest authority there is, which is God himself. So where do we get canon? I like talking about the canon to little kids because their, their minds immediately go to ships and, and, and boom. Now, canon with one in is just simply means a rod or a reed to measure. So we could even call this the tape measure of the Bible. It's a standard. It's a norm. The books of the Bible have been accepted as scripture. Is That is the canon, the 66 books that we have. And so that's a good word to, to know. Why do we need the canon? And I know I'm going a little bit fast. Again, these slides are available online. Why do we need the canon? The apostles were Christ's formal, authorized, deputized representatives. John 20 is very clear about this. And as the apostles died, and as they passed out of the picture, it was important that their teaching be preserved. You recall Acts 2.42, the very first thing that happened in the brand new church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem is that the church gathered together and they engaged in fellowship and in prayer and in breaking the bread and in what? The apostles' teaching. How did they engage in the apostles' teaching? They said, Peter, go after it. And Peter would preach. John, teach us something. But as they grew older and as they died, it was important that their teaching be preserved. Even the apostles were concerned about this. The apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven two. now I commend you because you because you remember, excuse me, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered to them to you. When Paul speaks of traditions, he's not talking about, isn't it great that we sing the doxology at the end of every Sunday morning? Uh, isn't it great that we have greeters out front? Isn't it nice that we have green chairs? That's a tradition. When he speaks of traditions, he's speaking of the words that God gave him to speak. That's the tradition. Second Thessalonians 2.15, he says similarly, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Hold firm to them. He said, don't let go. And so the written apostolic witness became increasingly crucial because these men were going to die. Now, in the end, God providentially preserved the apostolic writings he preserved them through local churches, through pastors, through copyists, through church councils. And so the doctrine of canonicity deals then with how we accepted the apostles and the prophets' writings as scripture. How did we accept them? And I, I, want, to, I want to be very clear about this. The common misconception and myth 
is that in the first three or four hundred years of the church, um, all of a sudden the church had a bunch of meetings and they said, uh, all in favor of First Peter, say aye. Okay, the ayes have it. It's part of the Bible. All in favor of Revelation, say aye. Aye. Okay, the ayes have it. Uh, all in favor of the Gospel of Thomas. Oh, nobody wants that one. Okay, that one's not in the Bible. All in favor of the Apocrypha. Well, nobody believed in that. So that's, that's a separate issue. They did not create the canon. The church never voted on the Bible. So what did they do? How does the canon exist? How does my remote not work? Okay, wait a minute. There we go. No, wrong way. There we go. This was a process of recognition, not debate and voting. The recognition did not establish the canon. It simply vindicated what was always true. When did the New Testament exist as a whole? The minute the Apostle John put the period at the end of Revelation, the New Testament, as we have it today, exactly existed. It just wasn't compiled yet. It just wasn't fully recognized yet. It's the same way, and we can use an illustration that we understand. When a, a, a woman is pregnant... Whether or not she knows she's pregnant does not affect the fact that she's pregnant. She's pregnant whether she knows it or not. The word of God is the word of God whether it was recognized at the time or not. And so we shouldn't think that there was um, somehow nobody really knowing what the New Testament was until about AD 400. There was a lot of discussion on this issue. It was put off for a time. The reason it was put off for a time is because beginning with the stoning of Stephen and then particularly with the, after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the church dealt with three, 250 years of persecution. They didn't have time to sit around and have councils and to talk about these things. They were too busy surviving, spreading the gospel, running for their lives. But then the issues began to be very important because there were heretical uh, issues coming up and so a lot more official discussion happened. But we don't want to mistake that official discussion for somehow now we've formed the New Testament. If this is something that interests you, by the way, that there are books and books and books you can read about the formation of the canon that will absolutely convince you. I don't want to take time on all that uh, right now. But the main thing is we don't want to confuse the existence of the canon, that's God's action, with the church's recognition of the canon. We don't want to confuse those two. The statements of the church fathers, decrees of these various councils throughout church history, they are concerning the elements of the New Testament. They didn't create the Bible. They simply recognized what was already there. Now, what about the Old Testament? How was it recognized? The Old Testament canon was basically established by Ezra's time, the 5th century B.C. The scriptures accepted by Israel are exactly the same as the Christian Old Testament. That's one, that's one thing, if you're ever witnessing to a, a Jew, don't go to the New Testament. Go to Isaiah 53. Go to various um, messianic passages and, and use the scripture that they already accept. Now, there's a, a little uh, side note here. What about the Apocrypha? The Apocrypha is a set of books written between the time of the Testaments. Uh, if you've ever seen a Catholic Bible, uh, which is kind of a contradiction in terms, but a Catholic Bible... They include the Apocrypha, and they include it as Scripture. We don't. They're interesting. They're very helpful. Uh, they, they function very much like very, very useful commentaries um, on uh, the, the life and times of Israel during these times. They contain lots and lots of truth. But I've written some books that contain lots and lots of truth. I would never hold it up as, I would never say, take my book, Strengthen the River, and tack it onto the end of your Bible. I mean, the, the thunder and lightning that would come at that moment would be tremendous. The Apocrypha is great. It's wonderful. If you ever have time, read it. But it is not Scripture. It doesn't claim authority like the Old Testament does. The, the Jewish writers, they didn't consider them God's words. They just said they were good books. Jesus never quoted the Apocrypha one time. New Testament writers never quote the Apocrypha one time, ever. And there are some teachings in the Apocrypha that contradict Scripture, probably just like every other book that's not, I, I'm, I'm sure whatever books the Lord allows me to write, there will be a reckoning that, Steve, on page 47, this is heresy. Did you know that? Like, no, I didn't know that. Sorry, that got by me. 
not the Apocrypha. So if you have a Catholic Bible, it's interesting. It makes a really good coaster if you want to use it that way. Read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament. Read the Apocrypha if you want. Um, as soon as you know the Old and New Testament to your satisfaction, then take the time to read the Apocrypha. So the Old Testament canon clearly established. That's not where our uh, concerns may lie. How did we recognize the New Testament? The New Testament canon was established in the first century. I said this, as soon as the Apostle John hit that last period on, uh, on the book of Revelation, it was done. But the historical recognition of that canon was a process. And so I want to talk to you about how the New Testament was recognized, kind of what happened here. And there's some principles to go through, and I'll, I'll just touch on these very briefly. There was the competency principle. The competency principle says that only God is adequate to witness to himself. That no man can say, I believe this is the word of God, therefore it is. Hebrews 6.13 says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. And so ultimately only God can tell us what is scripture and what isn't. Then we have the chronological principle. God limited canonicity by announcing the close of the Old and the New Testaments. He announced both. The Old Testament announcement happens in Malachi 4, 4 through 6, speaking of Elijah, the next prophet. He says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. This is a, a statement of the law is done. Remember it. The New Testament announcement, Revelation twenty two eighteen. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. This is the official termination of the gift of prophecy, by the way. The gift of prophecy of hearing from God and speaking the words that he says was in operation in the early church. Why? Because they didn't have a New Testament yet. They, they didn't have... Uh, copies of Matthew and James, some of the early books to be written. And so God providentially spoke to the church through men to let them know his will. But now, at the end of Revelation, he says, that's done. And so if you run into somebody that says, God told me to tell you, here's what you say. Hang on just a minute. I got to get a pen. Let me re open up to the book of Revelation, chapter 23. Let's start it. Go. Now, they would say, well, that's not what I meant. Really? When you said God told me, God told you something, is it not on the level of Scripture? Well, no, it's not on the level of Scripture. Then why should I believe you? So the official termination of the gift of prophecy is easily proven just at the end of Revelation. This principle goes with the next principle that only apostles and prophets under the supervision of apostles could write Scripture. And so we have the credential principle. The credential principle. God produced canonical books through the agency of an authenticated prophet or apostle. And I'll give you a couple of references here. The main one is 1 Thessalonians 2.13. You could also look at 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 37. 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 37. In, in other words, um, somebody didn't come up to the apostle Peter and say, Hi, my name is Clarence, and I wrote this book, and I think it's in the Bible. Peter would say, hang on a minute, let me set this on fire and then tell you to leave. Because no, the, you, you had to have the proper credentials. In the Old Testament, this would mean it's produced through the agency of an authenticated prophet. For example, ancient Israel believed that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. He was the spokesman for God. The Pentateuch isn't said to be canonized or part of the Bible because it was beautiful, because of its linguistic perfection its style it is simply there because moses was god's spokesman who else is going to write the pentateuch other than the man who has been leading israel for decades and so that only makes sense the divine author guaranteed the authenticity by affirming that moses spoke for him 
So what does this mean in the New Testament? Well, it would mean that now the, the Bible is produced through the agency or authority of an authenticated apostles. The apostles had divine authority and were received as having such. What was one of the ways that they, they authenticated their authority? It was by performing miracles. And I imagine that that was as much a surprise to them as it was to the people around them. But when a guy comes to town and says, uh, I, you know, I, I have some words from God. Why should I believe you? Well, let me raise this dead person to new life. Okay, I'm all ears. And so they authenticated. Hebrews 2 speaks of this, the miracles authenticating. Um, when the Apostle Paul, who said that he spoke in tongues more than anybody, when he arrives in a city where he doesn't know the language, and they know, oh, you're from Tarsus, there's no way you could know our language. And he starts proclaiming the gospel to them in, in their language. Okay, I'm all ears. And he, he along with the other apostles, were given these miracles with the credential principle. By the way, the early church fathers, hundreds of them that wrote to one another in the generation immediately following the death of the apostles, none of them claimed to be successors to the apostles. None of them claimed to have received a word from God. As far as they were concerned, the canon was closed when John died. It was done. So we have a, a, great, uh, a great witness there. Then you have the consistency principle. The consistency principle says that God superintended all canonical books so that they're totally harmonious with previous revelation. How is this possible? Well, 40 different authors, something like that, over 1,500, 1,600 years, writing um, every, everything from farmers all the way up to kings and everybody in between and never contradicting each other, staying true to the redemptive plan of God throughout history Beginning to end. How is that possible? It's not possible unless God superintends it. Acts 17.11 says, Now these, speaking of those in Berea, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. What does this mean? This is Paul preaching the gospel to Jews in the city of Berea, and they said, Sounds good. Hang on, we're going to compare your message to all of the Old Testament. That's what it meant that they were noble-minded. They were smart. They knew their Old Testament. And what was their conclusion? Your message is exactly the same. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you have the conviction principle. Again, these are the principles that the early church used to um, recognize the canon. The conviction principle, God the Holy Spirit must persuade Christians of the authenticity of of a book. This work of the Spirit is a corporate matter on, on all Christians, and it's kind of a corporate internal testimony. Well, let me give you an example. Millions and millions of people have come to faith in Christ simply reading the Gospel of John. Christians throughout 20 centuries have all agreed the Gospel of John is, is a miraculously given book by God, superintended by the Holy Spirit. Why have, they, why have they agreed to that? Because the Holy Spirit has, has superimposed that on their hearts. You read it, you get to the end. You, this book is of God. And millions and millions of Christians coming to faith um, through that. I've heard in our church alone, I've heard of three different people coming to faith reading the Gospel of John. That is the Holy Spirit's work. It is um, what one author called a stunning unanimity. In other words, ask any Christian around the world, do you think the Gospel of Matthew, for example, is part of the Bible? Of course it is. Have you read it? 100% unanimous across the board. So that's the conviction principle. I want to repeat this one more time. The only true test of canonicity is the testimony of God the Holy Spirit to the authenticity of his own word. That's the true test. Now I want to take the next few minutes and we're going to go through this um, at hopefully a reasonable pace. But I want to talk to you about the synoptic gospels. Because this goes with canonicity. The greatest attack on the inspiration, the inerrancy, the authority, and the canonicity of Scripture today is on the gospels. The synoptic gospels speak of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What is, what is this? I want to talk to you about why you can trust the synoptic, synoptic gospels. 
And the reason I, wanna, I have to convince you to trust them is because you randomly order, say, 10 commentaries on either Matthew, Mark, or Luke on Amazon, and seven of them, eight of them, are going to say there are errors between the three. There are inconsistencies between the three. That has been um, an absolute heresy that's been introduced into our thinking in the last 150 years, 170 years. And so now we have to defend against that. So when you get commentaries, and you should, and one says, um, this is contradictory to Mark, but we're going to believe this one. Mark was probably in a bad mood when he wrote that day. And you have great men who say they're great men because they have lots and lots of degrees, not because they're actual men of God all the time, beginning to call into question the, the integrity of Scripture. And so we have to take some time to defend that just a bit. Why can you trust the synoptic gospels? Let me give you a definition first. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the reason they're called synoptic, they go together, is there's 230 places of what's called triple tradition, meaning they record the same events or the same conversations. And you you see this in your Bible all the time. You read through the gospels and you have a little footnote. See also Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 11. You have that all the time, 230 places. Now, here's the apparent difficulty. Here's where people get off track. Each book often records a slightly different version of a given event. Liberal theologians call this the synoptic problem. Now, what does that already do? That already puts you on the defensive because what do you do with a problem? You have to, what? Solve it, right? It starts with a wrong presupposition. There is no problem. So to try to solve the problem, they came up with a way of judging the scriptures called source criticism. Source criticism says that each gospel must have had a source that was consulted by the authors. Now, that's not entirely inaccurate. There is some truth to that. Luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 basically tells us that the gospel of Luke is a compilation of the research done by Luke. And in fact, he references other sources and you go wait a minute the gospel of luke is not an original source not in the strictest sense but it's the only inspired source so that there's not that's not a problem with that the problem is with the different versions of source theory and so i'm gonna we're gonna get in the weeds here of some history but i I want you to be convinced about your bible there is the two source theory this came about in the 18th century The two-source theory holds to what is called Markan priority, that the Gospel of Mark was written first. Why? Because it's shorter and it's simpler. It also holds to an imaginary document called Q. It's from the German quell, which means source. So the reason I'm telling you this is, again, order 10 commentaries on Amazon on Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and seven of them, eight of them, nine of them will say, this portion is quoted from Q. And you need to know, oh, wow, where can I buy Q? Do a search on Amazon for Q and see if you can find it. Matthew and Luke also have material not in Mark, they say, so they must have used Q as a source. Okay, here we go. Mark came first. Matthew and Luke can't possibly just simply be inspired. And so they used Mark as a source and also this imaginary document, Q. Similar to this, the four-source theory, it's the same as two-source, but Matthew also used a document called M, and Luke used a document called L. Now, what is so crazy about this? The fact that the majority of Bible scholars in seminaries around the world have believed this hook, line, and sinker, and not one of them have ever read Q, not one of them have ever read M, and not one of them have ever read L. The only way that Q and M become important in history is that they're characters in James Bond. That's it. Now, why would you say this? Well, because it denigrates the fact that God the Holy Spirit can inspire three different versions of the same event that appear to come from different perspectives And humanity says, I can't accept that that's inspired. I'm going to get to some some issues with that in a minute. The majority of critical commentaries on the Gospels 
they will talk about Q, M, and real as if they're uh, Q, M, and L as if they're real. So I just want you to be aware of that because it it really makes you go, ooh, this guy must be smart. He has access to documents I can't possibly get. You know what? They couldn't get them either. It's just theory. It doesn't make the commentary bad so far as the text itself goes. You know, when you come to Q, don't go, oh, in the trash. No, uh, do what Steve Lawson says, chew the meat and spit out the bones and use what's useful. Uh, By the way, the Old Testament has their own version of this, that the writers use sources that we no longer have and the critical commentaries, the majority of them believe that also. This came from J, they call Yahwistic text. This came from P, priestly text. So, okay, just get your little black marker and go in those letters. It doesn't mean it's a bad commentary. It just means that they're, they're quoting something that's not real. So why is there a problem with source criticism? I've listed a few. First of all, it assumes the existence of imaginary documents. It says, well, these, the, these must exist because really, really smart people decided they did. It also ignores the fact that the early church for hundreds of years was unanimous. Mark wasn't written first. Matthew was written first. It wasn't, it wasn't Mark first. Likely followed by Luke and then Mark. So if we're going to go in chronological order, it should be Matthew, Luke, Mark, and John. But Augustine is most likely uh, the one who came up with our current order. And why did he come up with that order? He couldn't push back against 100% of the church that believed that Matthew came first, even though Augustine uh, uh, thought maybe Mark came first. And so he compromised and did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And now you can't, you know, <laughs> all of you who have named your, ch- your four boys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, oh, they're in the wrong order. Sorry about that. Source criticism also assumes that there are contradictions and that you have to explain them away. Now, to be fair, the reason for source criticism is not to say, I don't like the Bible. The reason for source criticism is to say, "Uh uh-oh, the Bible is the only text we have from God and there's contradictions in it. I need to figure out how to explain that. And so it, it is an effort to explain the Bible, but it has the effect of denigrating the Bible. It also assumes a low view of Scripture. It's that, uh uh-oh, there's contradictions here. It completely ignores the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that somehow God is not capable of giving us inspired documents. You know, he did his best, but just didn't quite meet my standard as an Oxford scholar. It completely ignores the idea of harmonizing the Gospels, that all of the 230 places of triple tradition have a way to be harmonized. We may not always have exact answers, but every one of them, 230 out of 230, have plausible explanations. There's not one of them that, say there is not, that says there is not a possible way for these to um, not be harmonized. Um, it, it's been such a, such a blessing to the church that men have written gospel harmonies, and I'll talk about that more in a moment. And it completely ignores the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are eyewitness accounts. Why, why is that important? Because people see things from a different perspective, from a different angle. It doesn't mean they're seeing something different. It doesn't mean they're contradicting one another. They're just presenting different information. More problems with source criticism. It often operates under the assumption that Matthew didn't actually write Matthew, that Mark didn't actually write Mark, that Luke didn't actually write Luke. And so now what you have is making the authors of Scripture liars and completely ignoring the unanimous understanding of the church for hundreds of years. Now you're really getting in the weeds because you're questioning authorship. Also, if all the authors of the Gospels use secondary sources not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there are some massive implications for this. That means we don't have the actual words of Jesus and we don't have the actual theology of Jesus. All we have is a research paper based on documents we can't read. When you read, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say unto you, that's because Jesus said, truly, truly, I say unto you. Not because somebody researched some document that may or may not have said that. If all we have is a second account, second-hand account, that might not be historically reliable, that might have some truth in it, then we're in trouble. But that is the dominant view in most evangelical seminaries around the world today. You are in the minority. 
one of my professors in seminary said, you know where the Bible is the safest? It is safest in the laps of the church member. Because you are not going to get up tomorrow morning and say, let me see if I can criticize this Bible. You're just going to get up and read it so that you have the strength to live. And so it's safe in the church. The goal of source criticism and similar disciplines become now to examine the history behind the Gospels instead of actually examining the Gospels. You ever watch a History Channel show on the Bible? It just drives you crazy. They come up with the nutsiest things that just are weird because, heaven forbid, they actually just read the Bible. They've got to go look for other things that just don't make sense. Now, I don't want to leave you on that negative. I want to tell you why you can trust the Synoptic Gospels. I have a few reasons. First of all, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the original documents were perfect and without error. We go back to inspiration. God cannot lie. If there are errors, contradictions between the Gospels, somebody is wrong. And if somebody is wrong, then God wasn't able to superintend the writing of that book. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, clearly state the inspiration of Scripture. Another reason you can trust the Synoptic Gospels, they can be harmonized together. And historically, during the Reformation, a ton of harmonies were produced. This became a big deal. That, that men of God, pastors, were, were saying, how do Matthew, Mark, and Luke fit together? Um, these basically come in two forms. Um, you can read a form that is a, called a column form. Uh, Robert Thomas did a, 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 wonderful, uh, a wonderful harmony a few decades ago, and it comes in columns. So you, you read it, and there's, there's columns, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then it includes John as well, and, and it puts them together. A few years ago, um, John MacArthur, a.k.a. Nathan Buzitz, who really did most of the work for him, put together One Perfect Life. That's a second form. It's, it reads like one long story with little footnotes. This is from Luke 5. This is from John 4 and so forth. And you put it together that way. Why are harmonies so important? Because it's possible. It is possible to take the cogs of Matthew and Mark and the cogs of Luke and John and see them fit perfectly together. Now, sometimes there's three, four, or five different options of how a particular passage fits together, but there is an option. There is an option. For example, um, one gospel says that there were two angels at the tomb. Another one says that people saw one angel at the tomb. Is that a contradiction? No, some of them saw one and some people saw two. It's really that simple. Um, how many people are here if I say that? Well, we could count this room or we could count all the rooms in the church. They're both true. So that those are easily done. Another reason you can trust the synoptic gospels, they were written independently of one another. Now, the authors knew each other. They may have shared stories, but they were totally independent. Why is this important? Because that was the unanimous position of the early church and the church as a whole for, wait for it, 1,850 years. That was unanimously what the church thought, that these Gospels were written independently of one another, not Matthew and Luke copying Mark. Another reason you can trust them, they're eyewitness accounts. Multiple witnesses. Matthew was an apostle. Mark was an eyewitness and a longtime assistant to Peter, um, an eyewitness. Mark was probably there when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane because he records a young man being scared and running off and leaving his clothes behind. Most scholars think that was Mark himself. He said, I don't think I'll put my name on this one. Luke, he carefully investigated shorter fragments of written memories plus oral interviews with eyewitnesses and the Holy Spirit inspired the final product. Why does Luke not have a bibliography at the end? Because it's irrelevant. The final product is the inspired product. God providentially preserved that which he desired to preserve. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 1 Peter 1, 25, The word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. There's another reason you can trust the synoptics. 
Every gospel presents certain aspects of the life and ministry of Christ with certain emphases. Now, when we get to the gospels, if you haven't been through, uh, I think it's module four yet, when we get to the gospels, you're going to find that Matthew and John are written to Jews and Mark and Luke are written to Gentiles. You're going to find that uh, Mark and John are written to unbelievers and find that Matthew and Luke are written to believers. What does that give you? Every possible combination, Jewish believers, Jewish unbelievers, Gentile believers, Gentile unbelievers. Every gospel has a specific emphasis. The, the Matthew emphasizing the kingship of Christ. Mark emphasizing Christ the servant and so forth. And so they, they're, they're beautiful together. If you had the wishes of the critics of the synoptic gospels, you would make them all exactly the same. Then why do you have four? If they're all identical, that doesn't make any sense. Another reason you can trust the synoptics it must be trustworthy to be worth relying upon. If the Gospels are only man-made materials that may or may not represent what actually happened, may or may not represent what actually was said, then they can't be trusted, they can't be studied, because Jesus may or may not have actually said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Maybe he said it, maybe he didn't. You know, in the 80s and 90s, there was a whole group that got together to try to study which parts of the Gospels were actually trustworthy, and they decided, in their wisdom, that there were 12 places in the Gospels you could trust. What does that mean? It means I'm out of a job in three months of preaching. Absolutely ridiculous. One more reason you can trust the synoptics, you can't deny the life-changing power of the Gospels to save. You cannot deny that. It, it, take your pick. You're having trouble believing in a God who is a king, then read Matthew. You're having trouble believing in a God who is a servant to mankind, read Mark. Having trouble believing that Jesus is God, read John. Having trouble believing that the Son of God can do miracles, read Luke. Having trouble believing that God would reach down from eternity to snatch the lowest of the low of the low, read Luke. Take your pick. So I, I don't think anybody in this room was wrestling with this. Oh, good, I was about to throw my New Testament away, but now you've convinced me. I just want you to be aware of this, and I want you to have a higher view of your Bible, sadly, than most of our seminaries do, so that the Bible is safe in your hands. You remember what Paul told Timothy, that one of the jobs of the church is? You are the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And how do you do that? Keep this and believe it, and tell your kids to do the same. That's how we hold the truth. Well, that was a lot. You guys are awake. I'm impressed. Let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll be done. Thank you, Father, for a Bible we can trust. It is our very bridge to eternity. And so I pray, Lord, that as we read our Bibles, as we hear the preached word of God, we would be enamored with a word that is perfect, that is inspired, that is authoritative, that is superintended by the very Holy Spirit of God, to connect God with humanity. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. I thank you for Grace Bible Church. Might we live up to that name. We pray in Christ's name, amen.